players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering, Mana Crypt, Mystic Remora, Glinthorn Buccaneer, and many others, battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thrabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 95 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Real Results and CEDH Success. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, aka Thraben U, joined by... I am Brian Koval, aka Bosch and Roll. And I am Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Before we get started, as always, shout out to our new paid subscribers, paid members who just enjoyed the pre-show. We've got Pat and Andrew from YouTube. And Patreon is giving us a bit of a display bug right now. I know we got like four or five new patrons since the last one, and we'll shout you all out in the next episode. I'm sorry, but it's only showing us March and not April. So we'll get you next time, but we appreciate you being here. Before we begin, uh, we're going to go ahead and do our sponsored segment. So... Are you interested in running a CEDH event or want your LGS to do so? Worried about the logistics of it? Fear not. Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software has you covered. You can create and manage tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system ensures you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for details. And we'll talk about CEDH later on in this episode, actually, although Legacy is going to be the primary focus today. Right. As usual, when we talk about something other than what we normally talk about, we'll do Legacy first and we'll let you know when it's CDH time. If you are here just for Legacy and you don't care, you can leave. But CDH is pretty cool. And Bryant and I both had success at a recent tournament and we're going to talk about that. But let's do Legacy first. All right. So as of two weeks ago in our previous episode, we were kind of talking about emerging tech, things that have caught our eye. And now we're at the point where we're starting to get, you know, Real results, people have had time to brew, Delver decks are, you know, starting to kind of go in a couple of different defined directions, and so we're going to be taking a look at the showcase qualifier results from this weekend, as well as the April 2nd challenge results, and kind of giving you a snippet of the metagame, as well as some things that you probably want to keep an eye on. Yeah, to start it off, I am hyped about the winner of this tournament. This was Jujubean played basically... Azorius removal spells dot deck, which is exactly my brand. It's it's a day's undoing Jeskai control deck. This thing has six forces plus actual counter spells, swords to plowshares, prismatic ending, two supreme verdicts in the main, four Narset, three Teferi, Wandering Emperor, only two creatures, one Hall Breacher, one Burktide Regent, dressed down in the main. Oh my god, hook this to my veins. This is the type of magic I like. This thing this Jeskai Undoing deck, this was really big like a year, year and a half ago. And the play pattern of this 
on paper, it looks like Jeskai control, but the play pattern is closer to show and tell or Omni show where you're trying to get an A and a B together and shove it through with protection. That's cool because that play pattern is offered inside a shell that looks like Azorius control. If you need to go that route, you do have that wall of removal and counter magic that I just mentioned. Generally, the problem with big blue control decks is pitch cast a force of will twice, then they're out of cards and they just die to whatever's left. But this deck having that four Narset to keep you refilled, and if Narset finds the days on doing it any time, now you win. Gas pedal inside a blue-white control deck, it's back. Expressive Reiteration's gone. Narset has a chance in the metagame again. It's a brave new world out there. Juju was actually my first loss in this event in round three, and I had seen the the pair of force of negations and the counter spell in game one and like right at that moment i was like this is not going to be a good round for me and at one point juju revealed four different narsets and i'm not talking about like oh i minus my narset and then i'll like so and then days and doing it back in like i had seen four narsets in different zones and i was just like oh that's what we're doing and then i was trying to figure out how many hole breachers there were i guessed three i didn't realize that there was only one but i was just like juju's clearly just on like four days and doing like based on the information i had mid game the restraint on one hall breacher is kind of clever because you are a deck with two supreme verdicts and investing your a piece of the combo it, and just to get it swept up when you have to play reaction anyway if you don't find your B in time. But Hall Breacher is just nutty and playing one, make them respect it. I like that. That's good stuff. I can't tell just yet if this is back in the metagame at large or if the showcase was hard targeted by this specific wall of interaction. These Azorius control decks just chew up creatures, eat them for breakfast, and they're usually soft to combo in the main deck. But Juju just has his own combo and six forces plus a counter spell. This could just be a hard target at the extremes of creature and combo and just ignore control in the middle. So I will say so many of the decks that I have played for my channel recently are super soft to sweepers. Uh, there's been a rise of these like mana dork driven decks that are ramping into initiative creatures or natural order targets or whatever. And Supreme Verdict would be absolutely kicking my teeth in pretty much no matter what deck that I was playing. I really like that as a card choice right now. I've been registering a lot of Supreme Verdicts on my channel lately. Uh, the, the second EI was banned. I'm going back to my seven basic lands, basic island, basic planes roots and explore from there. I, Whenever a format shifts, I like exploring the extremes first and... The extreme that is most natural to me is tons of basic lands, tons of removal, and let's see if I can beat combo somehow. So when we look at the second place deck, this certainly isn't up my alley, but I know that both of you have played this deck multiple times on your channels. Phyrexian Dreadnought. Yeah, Phyrexian Dreadnought we identified as probably a loser from the bans in our ban update episode because... Everything that stops the initiative also starts the Phyrexian Dreadnought, and Dreadnought decks got a lot of splash damage for free versus Thassa's Oracle decks and initiative decks because they were trying to stop creatures from triggering when they enter the battlefield anyway. Here we are with kind of a hyper-meta deck here. This is not the type of decks that, I don't know about Phil, but this looks nothing like the Dreadnought decks that I've explored on my channel. This thing is 
pretty far in. It has two Snapcaster Mage and a Brazen Borrower for creatures other than the four Dreadnoughts. Uh, this is not part of a package. This is the plan. It's the whole plan. Four Dress Down to enable it. Four Urza Saga to tutor up. Three Microsynth Gardens to copy it. And then there are four Red Blasts in this main deck. Two Pyro, two Actual Red Blast. One Minor Misstep, four Force of Will, three Stifle. They're just throwing fastballs straight down the center. Here's a 12-12. Good luck. When I look at this deck list, I can't help but think that the user playing it, named Cool User, targeted the fact that Cephalid Breakfast did not go away. And a lot of people, including Brian, have been hyping Cephalid Breakfast. And Doomsday was also on the rise. So I think that they looked at those two decks and they're like, I'm going to hard target this specific metagame where those decks are likely to do well and just kick their teeth in. I, I, I played against this exact deck, I think, for one of my recent videos. While the deck was slow to do things that mattered, once it had its big turn, it swung the game very quickly. Um, I think I was playing some sort of like Winota deck um, that was trying to end the game quickly. And while they couldn't necessarily kill my threats, they had a dress down that they kind of used as a pseudo fog to stop like, I think some window to triggers and a goblin rabble master trigger or something like that. So they took like three or four damage instead of half of their life total. And then the next turn, there was like a brazen borrower and another dress down or something, followed by a Phyrexian dreadnought or two. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, I thought there was no way I could lose this game. And they pivoted very quickly. So the the deck is good at wiggling. I have a question for the two of you, and this is going to show my inexperience playing these style of decks, but traditionally in formats like Vintage, Urza Saga's natural predator is the similar decks in the format playing Dressdown. In this deck, you're a deck with four Dressdown, four Urza Saga. How often does the friction between those two cards end up costing you? Rarely. Uh, my experience is that you treat Saga more like you do in kind of a painter or like Scaponi Storm where you can turn one it. Pooping out the 1-1 one -one is more important than getting two constructs on the way through if you're on the turbo strat. A lot of the time you'll make a construct chump lock, make a construct chump lock, and then tutor up a dreadnought and you didn't need them anyway. They were just padding your life total on the way to the end step dress down and they weren't in play anyway. Uh, I have, I've played a lot of these dress down saga decks that are trying to get dreadnought in, and you don't care about your two two, in the same way that like, uh, painter or eight cast cares about getting swept up. Uh, I see that this list has a retrofitter foundry in it, which seems like it is kind of respecting the saga grind a little more than the the crazy all in ones that I've played. So it comes up. It it. It's more like Urza Saga tutors Dreadnought and then sometimes make constructs than Urza Saga makes constructs and then sometimes creates a combo. Like it's it's very much there for the Dreadnought. So I think before we go any further, I want to just take a second and just give a big like surface level overview. So in this showcase qualifier, our eight our top eight deck lists were eight cast, this Jeskai Days Undoing control deck a Tempo Doomsday, which means that it has Merktide Regent, a Black-White Arena Rector Helm of Obedience combo deck list, 
that blue red dreadnought deck list two reanimator decks and then rug delver with like goif unholy heat and murktide regent reanimator is interesting as the only one to break the top eight with two copies how many people were in this event was it like 32 wasn't it pretty small 30 yeah so it's pretty small and the the people who are hyper tuned in are metagaming each other reanimator is such a weird one because you see it pretty regularly in challenge top eights you run into it every moto league you play guaranteed between one and four times it's going to happen and i have not played against this deck or even seen it in the room in a paper tournament in a year i, I don't know if this is like okay on moto but i'm not gonna sleeve it up in paper or a card availability like i where is reanimator in paper tournaments because i don't see it i don't know but i see it in almost every league i play that's what i'm saying yeah uh are paper players just more ready for it or like if we're just pulling lists off the internet and shoving them into paper tournaments wouldn't we see the same sort of conversion i i've definitely talked about with my friends a number of times the fact that you just don't need to respect reanimator in paper tournaments but you need to come heavy for it on magic online and that it's contrary to the general uh moto reflex paper and vice versa like generally i i just say like don't get too caught up in metagaming for paper versus moto because a lot of people are just pulling moto lists to play in paper but reanimator specifically i just don't see it's my understanding that, generally speaking, Reanimator's win percentage isn't actually that good. Like, so frequently on, on Twitter, I will see people just absolutely slamming the deck as, like, unplayable. And then it does this every once in a while. And, like, is a deck of choice for a lot of people who are trying to quickly grind leagues. I believe that there is likely, like when I was preparing for this event, I thought it was going to be a lot of Cephalid Breakfast, a lot of Doomsday, and then a lot of Delver slash Control decks. I think that these two people might have gotten by on the fact that people chose to not play the extra Graveyard Hate because they assumed that skilled wizards wouldn't play Reanimator. And instead they were just like, gotcha, turn one Gristlebrand. Notice how I didn't say Atraxafell? Oh, sorry. I'm just looking at the sixth place list that does have uh, that beauty, Atraxa. Uh, Reanimator has uh, what we used to call the dredge effect, which I don't even think dredge has the dredge effect anymore, which is it's the best on the weekend where it's the worst. Dredge is so... This used to be a thing all the time. Uh, people who've been playing Magic for 15 years will know it, and new people, uh, here's a new lesson. Dredge is like unbeatable if you're unprepared, and hilariously beatable if you are prepared and in legacy for a long period of time and an extended when it was legal there dredge would win a tournament get hated into the ground for two or three weeks and then the week where everyone is like dredge is unplayable because of the hate everybody cuts their hate and then somebody wins a tournament with dredge just sort of that puncher's chance when when you catch the format with their hands down and you just put one on their chin so Reanimator might be the new Dredge. It It's definitely a better deck than Dredge and holds up better to hate than Dredge does. So maybe we should call it the Reanimator effect. All right. Why don't we talk about the fourth place list now, which is kind of wild. Um, this is by Hank the Obese, who is playing an Arena Rector deck list. So as a refresher, this is the three colors and a white, one to Human Cleric. When it dies, you can exile it. If you do, search your library for a Planeswalker and put it onto the battlefield. And this is able to search up Ugin and Kaya 
as the prime uh sorry i should say kaya intangible slayer uh which is the seven mana white black kaya although there's technically also copies of karn the great creator in here as well yeah this deck is wild i played uh one of hank's previous iterations and found it kind of clunky um i want to say the previous iteration had some stuff like some initiative creatures in here and now the helm combo is something that's new so this deck can assemble like dalthy voidwalker or leyline plus helm or it can assemb- assemble arena rector plus phyrexian tower um or cabal therapy and so like you have these different angles that you can attack from while having two a plus b combos that work kind of okay with each other yeah this space is being explored I just, before we started recording, like within the last hour, played against a black-white deck that had all the initiative stompy elements except for actual initiative creatures. I saw zero of those, but I saw the the Paulo Vitor, whatever that card's called, Elite Spellbinder. I saw Anointed Peacekeeper, Opposition Agent, and then Arena Rector was at the top of the curve rather than Seasoned Engineer. So this is being explored out there in the wild for sure. I haven't quite been happy with any of the lists that I've played that exist in that space. I just dropped a Patreon article that was essentially like, hey, all these mono black decks that I'm playing are like not quite there. This is kind of why I'm having trouble sorting them all out. And the answer might just be like, hey, go into a second color to just finish off your playables. Yeah, I mean, you're more in this stompy fast mana Dothy Voidwalker space than me. But I have been impressed both playing with and against Esper control decks that top out on Arena Rector. They they play like the Sack Outlets and the Cabal Therapies, but they're just like a Baleful Strix sorts the Plowshares to Fairy deck until they suddenly have Ugin or Big Kaya in play. And you could also, against attacking decks, like if you're getting cracked by a Goyf, you just put Arena Rector in play and she functions as Moat because they can never attack into her until they have Graveyard Hate. Arena Rector is a cool card that's been existing on the fringes of the format for a while, and it's cool to see it show up in a major event like this. So I guess let's take a minute to just kind of touch on Delver. Um, As of about two weeks ago, we were kind of trying to scope out, you know, what does Delver look like? How do they replace EI? Are they going to try to replace EI? Are they going to go bigger? Are they going to go smaller? And the version of Delver that top aided here was actually Rug Delver. Um, breaking down some of the cards, three Tarmogoyf, three Merktide Regent, two Unholy Heat, a Spell Pierce, a Pyroblast, three Bobbles, kind of rounding things out. How many Stifle, Phil? Uh, hold on, let me let me check. Um, this successful player has zero copies of Stifle. It looks like the replacement slot like we talked in the last episode and how phil set up this segment as well uh, people were talking about predict as the heir apparent to ei we've seen chart of course uh, we've seen some stuff in the slot this this list chose tarmogoyf how about instead of drawing two cards you attack for five that's a way to go as well and i have certainly this week died to some tarmogoyfs with pyroblast in my hand uh, and lightning bolt it's back a big old juicy two mana four five five six creature what's really cool now compared to the previous times we've seen tarmogoyf in the format is that mishra's bauble is just accepted technology in basically all of these decks back in the day rug delver 
Tarmogoyf, it was normal for it to be 4-5, and then you would look for, like, weird things. Now the baseline is 5-6, and you look for extra weird things. It's worth noting when you scour over this list, I was like, what are, like, what are the other green cards? And there really aren't any until you get to the sideboard. And I was like, there might be, like, an Ancient Grudge. There's two copies of Minsk and Boo Timeless Hero as, like, a top end for your big blue matchups in case you get paired into Brian Koval, but, like... That's it. Those are the green cards. There's five cards in the deck with a green pip. And yeah, yeah, I mean, the same can be said about red. I, the red cards, uh, historically, Rug Delver was like a mono blue deck with Tarvagoyf and Lightning Bolt in it. And now we have Dragon's Rage Channeler, so we're a little farther down the red path. But this is still a blue deck right down the center with just a little touch of two different colors. And... The Minsk and Bootech, I would expect out of anyone who shows you a Tropical Island in their Delver deck, at least in the second games. Uh, but I've also seen the full mid-range pivot that we were seeing kind of pre-EI, where they either board in or just have some main deck copies of Uro uh, to go full middle on top of their Delvers. Um, alternatively, I've also seen a decent number of like three mana enchantments as ways to fight that mid-range battle. Um, so for example, I've seen Maddening Hex in play, which was something that had dropped off a whole bunch. And uh, what's the blue court? Of Cunning. Court of Cunning is something else that I've seen recently that um, wasn't super popular. Yeah, I put Maddening Hex in a brew on my channel recently. Uh, I don't recommend that deck in particular, but... It was a Grixis mid-range deck that needed some reach, and Maddening Hex, pop it right in the main deck, it went to work. Uh, I don't know if the format just got too inbred or too uh, focused for that. Like, Maddening Hex doesn't really solve the Delver Mirror in a meaningful way when everyone's packing Day's Hydroblast uh, and a bunch of creatures, so maybe it fell off for that, and it, it's not good against the initiative, but... People aren't ready for it currently, but it is. it does still suffer from the three-mana spell problem in Legacy. What do you two think of Price of Progress right now? I had a Blue-Red Delver player just game one Price of Progress me, and I was not ready, and it destroyed me. Um, where, where are you at on feeling that out? I think if someone game one pops you, they deserve the win. That shit is crazy. Like, there's so many combo decks in the format or decks that don't even plan on having three lands in play when the game is over uh decks like painter play nine or ten basic lands uh we see the return of these lazorius base jeskai decks uh with six to eight basic lands in them like go nuts i don't know like putting price of progress in the main deck in your wasteland deck what are you trying to do here i took a quick glance at the front of mtg goldfish we have Is It Delver, Eight Cast Reanimator, Painter, Cephalid Breakfast, Rug Delver, Sneak and Show, Death Shadow, Death and Taxes, Blue Zenith, Doomsday, Lands. So out of the top 12 decks, I'd argue that two of them are decks where you'd want Price of Progress, and that would be Blue Zenith and Lands. Yes, you might say, well, Price of Progress is good against Death Shadow. They also want you to Price of Progress them. Like, if you're going to make them go from 12 to four, I think that they accept that trade. The rest of these decks, you don't want that card. Yeah, I'm not a fan, unless that person is solving a very specific problem, because lands and 
depths are historically pretty strong against Delver. So if they're local meta or they were just sick of it, uh, if you're a Delver player and of your 12 local legacy players every Wednesday night, three of them play lands, I get it. But outside of that situation, I don't know about all that. Before we quit talking about the uh, the showcase list, I would just like to say I think that the ninth place list is absolutely perfect and more people should play that deck. Oh, this is a uh, Bryant underscore cook uh, who appears to be back on Veil of Summer, giving up on white cards forever. Change uh, mana base I'm going to be honest, Bryant. Bryant, you queued into me. I was goofing around with some brew and you basically got to exert yourself in our recorded game. On camera, you will find me say, oh, it's Bryant. He's playing Epic Storm, probably. And then you lead on Taiga. And I'm like, maybe it's not Epic Storm. And then you played a second Taiga. And I'm like, oh, this is definitely not Epic Storm. He's on some sort of nonsense, some like red green. I don't know where this is going. Like I put you in sort of like the the Belcher-esque kind of side of combo. And then you just epic stormed me. I was like, okay, he's just messing around with new tech or old tech. Going back to basics with the Taiga King. He's got two of them now. Uh, I was convinced by Alex McKinley to play four Abrupt Decay. And that required changing the mana base because Volcanic Island doesn't cast Abrupt Decay. And if you're going to play four of them, you can't accept playing one of your five lands not casting a four of in your sideboard. So Alex convinced me to play two Underground Sea, two Taiga, since they are the best land combination in your deck. And then Badlands is both of your primary combo colors. So I played it, and it was shockingly very good. But every time I changed my mana base, I received dozens of angry comments that were like, now I have to buy a second Underground Sea or a second Taiga as if I'm like solely responsible for these people's personal finances when I just wanted to play for Rev Decay this weekend versus all the eight cast decks. <laughs> yeah, whatever, folks. Uh, you can either just continue with the, the White Splash version where you don't need two underground seas, or you can uh, get a time machine and buy them when they were cheap like the rest of us. <laughs> That's the real solution. All right, so let's talk about this legacy challenge. Uh, so quick overview. Uh, our top eight are Red Painter, Eight Cast, Doomsday, the personal tutor version, Rug Delver, Blue Red Delver, a Yorian Natural Order Ramp Toolbox sort of deck, Eight Cast, and I guess we'll call it Natural Order Elves, but it only has two Natural Orders. Yeah, this top eight, this field is bigger, and... The top eight's a little less diverse. We've got two Delver decks and two eight cast decks where the showcase challenge only had one repeat in Reanimator. I, I will say the Red Painter deck, I played exactly this deck for my channel. I took this exact list. I did not have a good time. Fairly, it, it was one of those leagues where at the end you just sit there and talk into the microphone for like 15 minutes. Like, where did this go wrong for me? This is a tier one deck. It has been for a year. What can we learn from this? Like, just try to salvage anything from the absolute shit stomping you've just received. Uh, obviously, the deck's good. Uh, I, I imagine I didn't mulligan right. I identified, like, one spot where I definitely sequenced my lands wrong. But the fact that Painter has maintained this top-level success for as long as it has, while being difficult to play uh, optimally, is really impressive. And I'm glad it keeps happening. But I'm also just... So salty that we don't have Chaos Defiler yet, because I want to do that to people. Oh, for sure. 
I, I think there's some interesting things going on here, kind of touching on 8cast as well. Um, in the weeks prior to the bannings, this hybrid 8cast painter deck, this like blue painter deck, was doing really well. And now we're not seeing that in the top eights here. We're seeing people like re-exploring traditional 8cast and going back to red painter. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that says about the format it may be that like hey the painter portion of that was heavily heavily targeting the initiative stuff and uh just narrator's note here no initiative decks in either one of these top eights despite the fact that like people are messing around with them i do have some inside knowledge on the winning deck list of the event it's my good friend max carini on doomsday And I was chatting with Max in between rounds of the Legacy Showcase Finals when Max was playing the challenge. And Max said, I'm playing an April Fool's list, Bryant. And I was like, what are you talking about, Max? And he goes, well, today is April 2nd, but there wasn't a challenge that I could play on April 1st, so I'm playing this. And he was telling me how he won round one by reanimating his opponent's Gristle brand. And I was like, wait, you're playing reanimate? And he's like, yeah, I'm a grief duck. And I was like, okay, I get that. That's pretty cool. He's like, yeah, it's really sweet. And then he was then bragging about his round two match where he won with Sheldock Emrakul. And I was like, Max, you got to show me this list. And I was like, why are you back on Sheldock Emrakul? And Max explained that Delver isn't that popular in the challenges right now. There's a ton of Reanimator. And I think that has something to do with Reanimator being the top deck on Goldfish because it didn't get wiped. You know how people just look at Goldfish for the metagame. But Reanimator got to keep all of its stats and Delver got reset. So Reanimator was everywhere. And Max explained that Sheldak Emrakul is good against the control decks because if your name isn't Brian Koval, you've been cutting Wasteland recently. And we were like, okay, we're down for that. And then Max said, on top of that, the only bad matchup for Doomsday really left is Painter. And if you have a built-in Emrakul into your combo... You don't lose to that deck anymore. So Max had the entire metagame covered in the sideboard. And if anything wasn't covered in the sideboard, Doomsday probably just beats it in the main deck. So I'm not surprised someone as good as Max, you know, just won the event. Yeah, having four reanimates in your Doomsday sideboard is certainly uh, a play that you could make. I actually got clowned this week. It was in this painter league that I was just bemoaning. I, uh, my opponent, uh, turn one Dark Ritual Doomsdayed. And I passed the turn with a Pyroblast up because that's all I could do. And I was like, I don't think they can get to Thassa's Oracle this turn. Because it was turn one, and they cast Consider. And I was like, I could Pyroblast this, but they don't have a land... They have one land drop for the turn. They would need to come up with the Petal and the Oracle and the Cavern here. I'm just going to let this happen. And then they milled Oracle... And then went land on Earth and just put Oracle into play as a black spell. Uh, and yeah, uh, Grief being in this deck and moving into the space of playing reanimation spells too. Like there's there's cool innovation happening in this shell that felt for what, like two years now, however long Thassa's Oracle's been printing. I guess it's closer to three years. God, COVID just deleted all this time from my brain. Yeah, Thassa's Oracle came out pre-COVID. Uh, that was the last legal set that was released before everything shut down. So yeah, uh, the last three, three and a half years, the shell continues to iterate and it's really cool. Like on mentioning like grief reanimate stuff, like the same sort of stuff was in Hank the Obese's black, white, uh, rector deck list as well. 
um, maybe this as a general thing is better than people give it credit for. Well, it's been a thing in modern for over a year at, at this point. I mean, year and a half with the scam decks. And we're finally seeing those scam decks come to legacy where instead of playing uh, Undying Malice, you get the card reanimate that it's actually like much, much better. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me. Yeah, uh, this week I, I played against uh, it was Death Shadow and they're back on reanimate too. They go on and off that. That's old tech, but they don't always play it. And I got a uh, Thoughtsies reanimated on my Urza Lord High Artificer. The idea with grief of like taking a peek and I can reanimate grief if they don't have a good card and I can take their good card if they have one. This is cool stuff. So generally speaking, across these two events, there is a very good amount of diversity. Like, yeah, there's a couple of duplicates here and there, but we see 8-cast, Jeskai Control, Doomsday, uh, the Arena Rector Brew, Dreadnought, Reanimator, Rug Delver, different build of Doomsday, Blue Red Delver, the Yorian Ramp, and Elves. That's... And is it Delver? Uh, there's the non-green Delver deck in the mix as well. So we're we're back in the place where the Delver community doesn't necessarily agree on how to build it, which I'm okay with Delver being a good deck. I'm even okay with Delver being the best deck. But Delver being the best deck with a locked 70 and then you just tune the last five cards, that sucks. And we're out of that. We're back in maybe it's green. I don't know how long it's going to take before we see uh, a Grixis Delver reemerge. If there's any motivation to do that, I mean, the snuff out could re come back. We were seeing that towards the end of the, the now banned format. But I like when Delver has to make real choices about their deck building. I don't know if the two of you have looked at this sixth place deck list by Cough J, and they might be the slowest player on Magic Online. I'm sorry, Cough J. It's just the truth but your deck list is super sweet. When you look at it, it's a typical blue Zenith list. But then I was like, oh, they don't have Force of Will or Force of Negation, which are usually the cards I look for first in these Yorian-type builds. And then I'm like, oh, there's four copies of Gaia's Cradle. Like, this is a turbo Zenith deck. And then it has four Ice Fang Quaddle, four Fiend Artisan, taking from the Newton Elves a little bit. Like, this necklace is just so sweet because you have your Natural Orders, your Zeniths, you have your Fiend Artisans. Like, you're able to find all of your Silver Bullets very easily. Yeah, when I was on Legacy Weekend Stream with Dugs, we played a hybrid that I made. I wanted to be able to Zenith for... Uh, under mountain adventurer and i wanted to be able to natural order for atraxas so i hybridized blue zenith and natural order bant and we tried that and it needed some work still and at the end we were talking about a rebuild and we're like i think if you focus on the zenith stuff build out the zenith package a little bit don't worry so much about natural order that's kind of what's going on here like duke suggested knight of autumn that's in this list the the fiend artisans on top of the zeniths that's just more zeniths and this is a Yorion deck, so it also gets to just shove for Natural Order in, but this is sort of in that space that Dukes and I were theory crafting last Friday. And it's cool to see an idea pay off, whether this had anything to do with what we were talking about or not, but someone else found a similar conclusion. So something else that I think is kind of cool, just like on the topic of Atraxa, is that the 8th place Elves deck list is playing Atraxa, as one of its natural order targets, it's one Crater Hoof and one Atraxa, which I think is actually really good tech there specifically. 
because a lot of times when you can't win the game on the spot, you're often dead to like the Delver Flyer attacks the next turn, and Atraxa lets you pump the brakes on that and like gives you a way to like, oh, you've got a giant Murktide. Cool, I will death touch that while drawing four or five cards and gaining a bunch of life, and then all of my little elves can go wide of you, or, you know, I can do Wirewood, uh, Elvish Visionary nonsense, and grind back to a better position from there. You know, Phil could have talked about a dozen cool things about this deck list, like the Leaf Crown Visionary, or the fact that it's Nettle Sentinel Elves, but Phil just had to point out the Singleton Atroxa as if that's somehow a legacy playable card, uh, continuing to push the propaganda. Okay, let's let's take a breath. I, I get that we're all getting our daggers in. Atraxa is absolutely a legacy playable card. I don't think that was ever debated by anyone. The debate was, is it better than Grizzlebrand if you could put in one or the other? But you can't natural order for Grizzlebrand or Zenith for Grizzlebrand. You can't, well, I guess you could technically, but it's very easy to carpet of flowers in a sideboard game up into Atraxa, which is much harder to do with Grizzlebrand. Yeah, it is pretty cool that Atraxa is just in the mix in the things you can get with elves sideboard i am curious like how good the leaf crown visionary is that that was a card that i tried for a league but it was in kind of a suboptimal build of elves and i wasn't super excited about it and then the format was just way too fast with initiative st stuff uh for cards like that to matter so maybe we'll see some of these lords come back and do some cool things yeah, this list has definitely been kicking around for a little while because, uh, as anyone who listens to me talk about magic long enough knows, I keep elves foiled out and available, even if I'm never really going to register for a series tournament again. I'm just too far gone at this point, and I do keep uh, the foil options available. And I do own a foil Leaf Crown Visionary and a Traxa because I saw this list a couple weeks ago, uh, and it's cool that this is holding up. All right. Um, do we have anything else we want to say kind of about legacy results or the format as it is? Um, I'm just enjoying jamming games. I feel like things are pretty healthy. And even though we're a couple weeks deep, I still feel like there is an absolute ton of innovation going on. Yeah, I, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole because it was one of our main topics last week. But Staff of the Storyteller, I have, I think... 10 different Staff of the Storyteller brews or brew challenges or brew concepts in my recording queue that'll come out over the next six weeks. My community are hyped about that card and I'm with them. Uh, there's so many ways to go with it and I can't even wait. I have faced a lot of Staff of the Storyteller decks over the last couple of weeks preparing for the showcase. And Brian, I got to thank you. You are pushing the Lord's uh, work out there. I'm a big fan. Keep on playing Staff of the Storyteller, people. Yes, again, specifically Bryant Cook and the Epic Storm. We're in a tough spot. Uh, we're just going to start main decking for Deafening Silence to solve that. So everybody who's listening, curve Deafening Silence into Staff of the Storyteller, and it'll solve all your bad matchups. So Phil jotted down a note that I'm pretty happy about as well, which is no cephalid breakfast decks cracking either top eight this weekend. Uh, once again, I only care about decks that smush me, apparently, but I'm really happy to see that. 
it's just like there's no world in which I beat that deck. So I'm glad to see it uh, sliding off a little bit. But on a serious note, that deck is so good. I think there's like realistically, I think people are finally starting to give it the, the respect it deserves instead of just going like, oh, my surgical will beat that deck. They're learning that traditional graveyard hate isn't super good against Southlet Breakfast. Like when people talk about that deck, they just assume it loses to surgical and it's not even close to the truth. I mentioned it last episode. I cast Thassa's Oracle as many times as I dread returned it in the tournament that I top aided recently with Cephalid Breakfast, and you just don't care about graveyard hate, and not in a traditional kind of way at all. And when you can step through for the Oracle, it can just come out of your hand the same as it can come out of the graveyard. Combo still works. I do have a question for Phil before we quit talking about Legacy. And that's in the last episode. We were all pretty excited about the red-green turbo initiative list with Simeon Spirit Guide and Elf Spirit Guide, you know, that sort of deck. Has it fallen off? Like, are people just off that deck? Phil, where do the uh, Ancient Tomb players stand? In a very immediate window right after the bannings, that red-green initiative was really cracked. Playing with and against that deck recently, it's just felt so much more fair. I don't think anything in particular has been done to respect that deck, but I think just kind of as an ancillary effect of people kind of changing their removal suites and interaction, it doesn't feel as good to me. I know, and I don't remember who it is, I know there's some Magic Online grinder who is currently like 20 and 0 with a red-white initiative build featuring both Fury and Solitude as pitch cards, and one of their friends is also 10-0 as well. Um, so some people are having some success with red-white initiative. I'm not seeing it in the tournament results here, and it feels very fair when I'm playing against it. So, I don't know. I think initiative has just settled as a metagame player rather than a metagame definer, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've seen some cool stuff where the goal is to get to four green mana, and whether it's Undermount Adventure or Natural Order for Atraxa, uh, we take them as they come. Uh, that deck, it, it's just another thing in the Stompy pile, and when you're green and trying to get to four mana, the fact that Natural Order's in the pocket as well is kind of cool. But I don't think those are... I would not recommend them for a Grand Prix later this week. I wouldn't recommend them at all. Uh, I I played that like mono green initiative natural order monstrosity, and despite the fact that it seems like it should be in my wheelhouse, I just got my teeth absolutely knocked in that league. Bad against a surprising number of things, and like a lot of times if you're playing an initiative deck, one for one removal spells don't matter. But all of a sudden, when you're reliant on, you're very reliant on mana dorks to do any play that matters. The like early game lightning bolts and swords to plowshares just feel so much stronger than they otherwise would against you. Let's talk Elder Dragon Highlander competitive. Is that the proper order? Uh, I think that sounds right. And Watsi approved. Uh, so we are in the CEDH section of this episode. And the reason we decided to do this is Punt City 2 run by our sponsors, Eminence Gaming, occurred last weekend or I guess two weekends ago at this point. And Bryant and I both competed in that. Bryant made the top 16, and it's a top 16 cut. So, like, in four-player pods, that's a cut. It's kind of like cutting straight to top four, but there are 16 people involved. Just a little different math to wrap your head around, but 
Bryant made top 16, and I was the winner of the tournament at the end of the day. And a pretty good showing for our pod here. Uh, both of us playing our decks we are, I guess, known for. Uh, you more than... I just picked up a hyper-established deck and play it well. And you've been putting tons of work into your specific archetype. So, pretty good showing for both of us. What was your experience like? Because I did one of these big CDH events before, and this was your first one. It was my first one. And some advice that I received, and I'm going to name drop here, I'm sorry, from Matt Sperling, was a big skill that I needed to learn was trying to convince people to not throw the game. Matt had played in a couple events before and said that was a common theme throughout. And really, I took that to heart. And in my first couple matches, I really used that to my advantage. Because when I sit down with Rograk in the command zone, people would immediately go, there's a Rogsai at the table, we have a villain, and then everyone would attack me. And I had to be a little bit more political, because when you play in closed discords, people understand the power of Rogsai, but they also know when seat four is on an, an obscure commander that's also really powerful, they know what's going on. And having the skill to change targets uh, was really, really beneficial to me. I know that I told this anecdote to Brian already, but I had a Gitaxian probe where I was just like, oh, C4 is about to win the game. And everybody just immediately put all of the resources at destroying this person who had like an okay hand. And then I, I got back to my turn and resolved uh, Rhystic Study and won the game. So being able to change focus like that was just so crucial. That's why I played the deck that I do, uh, Timnacrom Blue Farm. And I build the deck to be slower than normal. Um, I changed seven cards from my list that I won Okotoberfest with. And all seven of the cards I changed slowed the deck down significantly. You don't really need to politic that hard. Because like Rograk Silas, like this is Grixis Storm. We are, they have one track mine. They're trying to get us dead. And, but Blue Farm could be like, Here's a, a professional facebreaker. I'll make a treasure and pass the turn. And you're just not as scary out of the gate. But you still ultimately, once your resources are built up, have all the same combos in that Rogside does. So the deck is naturally built to kind of sit back on its heels and let someone else make the first move and let someone else be the villain. And kind of pointing out to the table, like, this Tivit player is going to turn to their commander. What are we going to do about this? Or Winota... If Winota gets a single trigger, it could be the Magus of the Moon and none of us are playing the game. Do you want to risk that? Like just rather than Jedi mind tricking, like a lot of people think of politicking as lying or deceiving. I just point out things that are true about the game and let smart people make good decisions with the information that I've provided for them. And I found success in that pocket. One thing that I think Brian is very good at is saying, I'm casting Demonic Tutor right now. I'm going to get a card that is not going to win the game. I'm going to get Swords to Plowshares to stop player B. Or I'm so far behind on cards, I'm going to get Rhystic Study. Or something that isn't necessarily going to end the game. But they know that the next player at the table is almost ready to win. And that gives Brian time to recover. And I thought a lot about that when constructing my deck for the weekend uh, because I played Notion Thief and Narset. Narset's a card that almost nobody plays in the archetype that I play. And 
Brian, in my experience, has won a lot of games from being the fair deck and winning with incremental card advantage from professional facebreaker, Timna, Krom, all these things where it looks really innocent, but it accrues and then eventually just wins. So I was looking at ways to potentially stop that. And in my pods that I was testing, and so many people were doing the Koval method of, oh, I'm just getting a fish here. I need to gain card advantage because I'm so far behind. And I was sitting there, I'm like, what are the best ways of counteracting this? And it was Narset and it was Notion Thief. And it really paid dividends. Uh, Brian, did you happen to see those cards at all over the weekend? There was a Notion Thief somewhere in one of my games. I forget if it was flipped off in Adnaz but didn't come into play or if it was like threatened by an onboard fiend artisan. There was some context where I was cognizant of Notion Thief. And I did play against Narset out of Ishai Jeska. Basically, the whole table had to fight over the Narset, and none of us had a good answer to it, so we kept bouncing it. And then the Narset player would just replay it minus her again and be up another card. So it was a really ugly... It made us play ugly magic, but we also couldn't really function with it in play. So uh, that card is is potent where, where she shows up. I had a few players try to protect my Narset, like... Two players would have a blue enchantment in play that would draw cards, and then the other player at the table would play a removal spell to make sure that my Narset lived to keep those enchantments from drawing cards. And I was like, this is exactly the type of card I want in play. If my opponents are going to fight to keep it alive, I'm doing something right. Yeah, exactly. You get that effect a lot with cards like Draneth Magistrate, where it's like somebody casts a Draneth Magistrate, and then somebody else also casts one. The two players who don't have one are incentivized to protect the two that are in play because the one player who gets their commander is probably going to start pulling ahead. Let's just keep everybody locked down or something like Ethersworn Canonist where let's all just play honest, fair magic and take a break, hit our land drops. Uh, I'll protect that for you. That sort of stuff does come up a lot and it makes sense that Narset would be that kind of permanent. All right. So kind of talking about the politicking, one of the things that I was seeing in the wake of this event was a lot of CEDH players talking about like Winota and whether or not the deck is still like good and viable at the highest levels of competitive play. Because while Winota is an incredibly powerful deck, people are onto its bullshit by now. Players like Brian are going to advocate for, hey, let's not let that Winota get a single trigger if we can help it. Players know how and when to stop Winota really depower the deck. And as the Winota player, it's very hard for you to politic since you can snowball the game and kind of do so much off of so little. And if you have less ability to politic in a four-player game, that puts you into a really weird position. Yeah, Winota's in kind of a squeeze where a slower stacks deck can argue, my stacks pieces are keeping you alive, help me out here. But those decks struggle to win the game, and they usually end up just losing to like a nine mana Cyclonic Rift at some point, and then all their stuff's gone and they die on the spot because they can't actually close. But Winota's ability to close under stacks makes it so you can't really negotiate with them because they're going to freaking kill you. Then you get into kind of a... Either table is pants down and can't do anything about it and you get off a trigger or two and then you're too far ahead to really fight back or you manipulate the table somehow into thinking you're not the threat. I am of the genuine opinion and not just because I hate losing to stompy decks, which is true, but am of the genuine opinion that anyone who gives Winota a trigger who could help it is wrong. Even in like a Winota mirror 
where if like the two Winota decks are facing off against two different archetypes, what if the first Winota trigger hits Dranath Magistrate? Now you can't have Winota and you're dead now. You're just not even playing the game. I just struggle to find an argument unless somebody face up tutored for some kind of win, in which case that player messed up. Like if if Bryant were to like, uh, I was about to say if Bryant were to enlighten tutor, but he can't play that card. If I were to enlighten tutor for Underworld Breach and have to pass the turn because of another swearing candidate, and the table knows I'm holding Underworld Breach, then I have put the table in a position where Winota can say, give me a trigger or two and I'll try to stop the breach. And it's my job not to put anything face up that would encourage the table to let Winota get ahead. And you just have to think of it like that. And I'm a zero Winota triggers gamer. If Winota is about to trigger, it's because I don't have an answer to it. I will spend anything to do that. Like I have Mystical Tutored for Swords to Plowshares going down two cards to save the table from someone else's Winota. And I will do that every time if I'm able. I'm not messing around because that's just how I have to approach that. And that's the type of deck that's going to kill my type of deck. Anyone who wants to get into like a Ristic Study card draw circle jerk with me, let's do that. I like that kind of magic. But just getting hit with a Magus of the Moon with Indestructible and Double Strike. No, thanks. I'm I'm not winning that one. I, I won't have time to figure it out. There was a lot of conversation happening among different circles, Twitter, uh, it was happening at the event itself. People were saying, is Winona still good? Mike Sad, winner of Punt City 1, still made top four of Punt City 2. That is a very good result. 160 players running all the way back to top four. Props to Mike, terrific person. Mike and I like to dagger each other. It's a good friendship we have. I love it. Mike is a solid player. That said, when you look at Winona, people respect it now in the same vein that they do Rogsai, which is Rogrex Silas. And they say, when you sit down, you are public enemy number one. You have to be able to either change the target or overpower your opponents to the point where that doesn't matter. And that's usually my game plan. I'm like, okay, I'm the villain. And then you lean into it. You're like, okay, you have all these things, but I'm going to kill you before that's relevant. Winota is capable of doing the same thing. It's capable of getting down the lock pieces and stopping your opponents from doing anything meaningful. But it needs to pick a lane pretty much. And I think that Mike Sad is really good at finding those lanes, which is why he found success. Where maybe if you're someone who dabbles with the deck but doesn't play it all the time, maybe you struggle in saying, oh, against these commanders, I'm supposed to do this or whatever. But in general, I think the deck is fine. I still think it's a top four deck in the format. I've always listed it in somewhere in that top four. It's Tim Necrom, a.k.a. Blue Farm, terrible deck name, uh, Rogsai, Najila, and Winota. Those are the big four, in my opinion. And there's nothing wrong with playing, you know, the fourth best deck in the format. And I think it's healthy that they're all not blue decks. Like, Winota being there is a good thing. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. And we talked earlier in this episode in the Legacy section about the Dredge effect, where the best weekend to play Dredge is the worst weekend to play Dredge, because everyone's going to hate it out. And everyone knows it's going to be hated out, so they'll skip on hate. And then it'll just slide right through because nobody has hate. My list for this tournament, I played Containment Priest and Dam as two of my flex slots. And moving forward, my number one flex slot I'm going to try to make room for is Blue Elemental Blast. And that's I'm dedicating basically all of my flex slots to at least touch Winota, if not target it outright. The second we stop doing that, Winota's going to slide right through and beat us again. Just figure out what the gaps are in your deck, figure out what cards exist that can close them, and you will have success in magic formats near and far. And a card like Containment Priest, don't let someone tell you any 
card is bad. If it does the job it needs to do in your deck, it is good. And just try it. So I exited the tournament from not understanding one of my opponent's commanders very well. Like, I guess you could say that I was Brewers, Brewers advantaged out of the event. Uh, I guess that this commander was really popular before I got into the format and then sort of died off. The five mana Sisse, or three mana Sisse, I'm sorry, it's two and a white, and then it has Wooberg, search your deck for a creature. That Sisse. I was in a pod with another Rogsai, and then Michael Mapson of the Depths podcast on Joyra, and then Sisse in seat one. I was seat two. Rogsai was in seat three. Michael Mapson on Joy Rose in seat four. And the event for me came down to not understanding what the Sisse deck did well enough to convince Michael Mapson to make a more educated decision. Michael Mapson faced up said, I can either get Trinisphere or I can get Damping Sphere and put it into play. Which one is better against you? I mean, I'd be lying if I said that Damping Sphere was better. It wasn't better than Damping Sphere, right? Because like three mana to cast any one spell is pretty good against the Storm deck, right? Well, what we failed to realize with this, that the Sissy player was licking their, like they were just so happy. They're like, yes, please put Trinisphere into play. So uh, mm. Michael Mapson asked them what he should do. And sure enough, Trinisphere enters and the Sissy player goes, okay, I'll make infinite mana kill everyone. Uh, and we were all just like, no. But if we had understood what the Sissy deck did, Michael Mapson had the answer to Sisse in hand, but couldn't play it because of the Trinisphere. And I actually had a Pact of Negation where I could have time-walked myself to make sure that the table got to stay alive, but instead the Trinisphere just ended it for everyone. And that was a real learning moment for myself because I didn't speak up about the Trinisphere. I didn't know enough about the Sisse deck and what they were capable of, and uh, I won't make that mistake again at the cookout. Politicking people think about it as only as kind of how do I get the heat off me or how do I stop someone else from winning? But you can also use it to work together, both in this tournament. I knew a little more this tournament, but definitely back at Oktoberfest, I was just asking the other two players what the third player in our pods deck does. Uh, there's a Fiend Artisan that's about to untap with Grand Abolisher Protection. Does that kill us? And they're like, yeah, probably. And I'm like, okay, I'll tutor for Swords to Plowshares. If someone hadn't told me how the deck works, that player probably would have won. And then just like helping each other out. It, it is in everyone's genuine best interest to not lose to another player. So at any given time, three people have an arch enemy if somebody is about to present something. So the politicking of working together in our earnest versus the politicking of just taking the heat off yourself. It, it's all just a really cool fold of the format. And remember, kids, use your stacks pieces responsibly. Mm -hmm.